Around the dinner table last Saturday night, my daughter said this. Dad, I sometimes get confused with how I can believe Christianity is true. So many of my friends believe in other gods or no gods at all. How do I know that the message of Christianity is right? I mean, what a great and intimidating thought and question to come from the mind of a 10-year-old girl. Um, in its essence, it's a question that sums up some of the major stumbling blocks for so many when it comes to believing Christianity and its views on the world. What is the Christian message? What makes it so special compared to all the other messages of the world? Why should I put my trust in it above and beyond all of the other ideas that are out there? If these are your questions, then today's talk is written for you. Because as we come to follow Paul on his, continue following Paul on his journey in the book of Acts, he comes to the ancient Greek city of Athens, where actually he is asked to answer some of these very questions as well. So we hear Paul's answer in the passage that is coming. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to follow in Acts 17, 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. I don't often feel truly intimidated by situations, but there was one occasion in my working life when I was asked to go and present to all of the Crown Court judges in the city about a project that myself and my team had been working on. And as I entered the judges' chambers on this day, I suddenly became awe-inspired that this was a place of, of such history and power and everything about it communicated that to me. There were pictures on the walls of famous judges. There were choice bits of heritage furniture around. The carpet was thick and luxurious but beneath my feet. And in the middle of this room was a hardwood oval table surrounded by some of the sharpest minds in, my city, in the city. And as I entered, I suddenly felt incredibly small. And this feeling of intimidation only grew as I did my presentation that day, because rather than just accepting the worth of my project, these judges began to question, they began to cross-examine me as I presented what we were doing. They 
wanted me to prove and defend the worth of what I was saying. And I came out of this meeting uh, feeling like I'd just been in the dock for a crime I hadn't committed and that I had failed to defend myself miserably. It was deeply intimidating. And had you been Paul entering the city of Athens at this point in history, it would probably have just been been just as awe-inspiring and as intimidating to enter as the judge's chamber was for me. The sights, the smells, the sound, the ancient rich architecture would have been all around you. You know, this was a bustling ancient city of power, of influence, and its citizens for centuries had produced the sharpest minds of the day. People like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, who still shape our thoughts and ideas today. This was the birthplace of democracy and all of those rights and freedoms that we hold so dear in the West at the moment. Arguably, this was, Athens was, the most influential city in history. And what we see in the first part of this passage that I've just read is as Paul walks around the city waiting for friends to arrive and meet him, he sees this power and influence everywhere. In verse 16, he observes that the city is full of submerged in idols, huge opulent statues and temples that pointed to the complex network of ancient religious practices in the city. And as he begins to speak about Jesus and his message of dying and being resurrected on our behalf, he sees the city's rich intellectual history come to life. In verses 18 and 19, he is cross-examined and his message is cross-examined by Epicureans and Stoics, deep, deep academic thinkers who had held long-established moral beliefs, began to question the worth and the message that he put before them. And like my experience with the judges, we find that this was not an easy cross-examination for Paul. In verses 18 and 19, although some seem interested, some people call him a babbler, a nonsense-speaking religious charlatan, a fool for bringing these simple ideas amongst educated men and academics. I mean, Athens was an intimidating place, full of intimidating people who weren't going to take Paul's message lying down. But Paul here set an example for all Christians who face intimidating situations at time, does not wither when faced with this intimidating place and the questions. And he keeps faithfully speaking the simple message that Jesus Christ came to die and was resurrected to bring you back to relationship with God. And as he does this, enough curiosity arises in his strange teachings that the Athenians decide to put him in the dock of an informal local court, the Areopagus, 
which was a gathering of the city's elite, a place where more philosophers would have been, and the wealthy of the power and powerful of the city would have come to hear new ideas and to have judged their worth and to make judgment over various things in the city. And in verses 20 to 21, we see that the aim of this court was essentially to answer the question that my 10-year-old daughter put before me at the dinner table. Of all of the new ideas that we hear about day in, day out, why should we pay attention to your message of faith in Jesus? Why should we believe your message is true amongst all the other ideas of the world? And if you read on together, we see Paul's answer to this. Starting at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we not, ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in the judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. I mean, this is quite a long speech. Paul liked those. Later in Acts, he quite literally bores a boy to death through talking for so long. But when you break it down a bit, it's actually quite a simple two-sided answer to the question of why they should pay attention to his message that he gives. And one side of his answer could be summarised like this. Athenians you should listen to me because despite all your religious activity, all your poetry, your culture, your temple building, your wealth, your worldly power, your art, and your numerous lofty ideas, you are like a person trying to complete a jigsaw with a missing piece. All of your ideas have only got you part of the way 
a partial picture of who God is. But in reality, you are like a man who has put a key in the lock, tried to turn that lock, but just hasn't figured out how the door opens properly to God. He makes this argument in a couple of ways that we've just read. In verse 23, he points to the fact that they have an altar to an unknown God in the city as proof that despite all of their intimidating learning, they have not really managed to open the door to who God is. Interestingly, the term agnostic, which is still used today to describe one who believes there might or might not be a God, but you can't really ever find out and know whether that is true or be sure either way, comes from the reference to this altar in this passage in Acts. An agnostic would be someone who would answer my daughter's question like this. Daughter, there are just too many pathways in the world to commit to one as being the right one to follow. You can't trust in it and leave the others to one side. You can never really know out of all of the many ideas in the world which one is true. So don't discount any. Paul, by pointing to this here, this altar, is saying, Athenians, so far every other philosophy or idea or image of God you have heard about has just gone into this muddle of pathways and ideas before you. And the closest this approach can get you or has got you to God is agnosticism. An appreciation there might be a God, there might not be, and if there is a God, he is not fully knowable to you. That's the best you've managed with all your ideas. You've nearly got there, but not quite. That door is still locked. Paul also points to some of their culture to indicate how close they have come to understanding who God was. In verse 28, he highlights that some of their poets had uncovered the truth that we are God's offspring, that we all derive our existence and life from God. But he goes on to explain that because they don't have the full image before them, they have tried to fill in the gaps with their own imagination. And in doing so, they've made some horrible mistakes about what God looks like as they've tried to fill in the blanks and finish off this jigsaw puzzle. Verses 24 and verses 29 point to this. He says that they have mistakenly thought that God lives in boundaries, temples, that we can be the one to set the boundaries on God, or is found in lifeless idols. In the absence of knowing who God is, he says to them, you have just imagined who God is. And in reality, you've created, uh, what you've created are gods who are so small and contained and controlled by you and that are utterly lifeless and powerless to do anything true and wonderful in your life. And because of this, he says, you remain ignorant. To all these educated people, he says they are ignorant, they are uneducated to the might and power and beauty 
of who God really is. I mean, this is brave and foolish stuff to tell all of this great intimidating city who have a past of killing thinking thinkers that they don't like or agree with. All their thinking and all their efforts and all of the life they have put into the city around them, that yet they still remain ignorant and have a closed door. But this is, this is one side of Paul's answer to the questions why the Athenians should listen to him. Paul says that if you look honestly at where you are in life, all your debates, all of your religious and superstitious beliefs, all of your love of new ideas and creativity, all this has brought you is to a partial picture of God and a door that remains locked. And all of your ideas can take you no further. That's the first half of his answer. The other side of his answer in this passage is like this. Athenians, you should listen to my, me and my message because it is the missing piece of the jigsaw and it is the way the door opens to who God really is. Because unlike all the messages you have heard so far, I am not bringing you a new philosophy or an idea to be judged, but I am bringing you a message of an invite and a message of an introduction to a person, someone who can be known, to the uncontainable living God. He says his message is unique because it is about a person who he says in verse 27 is not actually very far from any of us, who had made himself fully known in the work of Jesus Christ on earth. The, the Christian message, he says, is not just another ingredient to put into the recipe and mix into the flavour of life. It's an invite to meet the chef of life himself. The one who created everything in the first place. And he highlights that unlike all of their religious philosophies, religion, philosophies, activities and lifeless idols, this living God actually has power to change and bring new life to us. He talks in verses 24 and 25 about how this living God, who is the one who created all life in the first place. In verse 28, he tells us that this is the God who sustains all of our life, whether we believe in him or not. Such grace. And finally, in verse 31, he tells us that in this God, there is resurrection life and freedom from judgment to be had now. I recently read a great biography by a guy called David Bennett, who in his book, A War and Love, talked about the key moment he moved from being an agnostic to, and not knowing whether there was a God, to following, beginning to follow Jesus and believing in him, to being convinced by Christianity. And he says the moment that this happened was the moment a friend of his asked if she could pray for him in a pub. 
And in his book, he writes that this happened. Instantly, as she asked me if she could pray for me, an internal war over how I should respond started. Should I say yes or should I say no? A voice in my mind whispered, you are a good agnostic. You have to be open to prayer because you don't know if there is a God. Any other response is intellectually dishonest and closed-minded. Another thought, this one louder, came on its heels. Get away from this crazy fundamentalist. She has been brainwashed. The gentler voice won. Yes, you can pray for me, I said finally, but I don't think anything is going to happen. As Madeline laid her hands on me and prayed, the bustle of the pub faded away. I entered into a stillness and a peace. Soon I felt a soft tingling on the crown of my head that slowly intensified, as if someone were pouring oil over me. The warm sensation ran down my body like a current of water. It was unlike anything I had ever felt before. In a moment, that experience, so totally from outside myself, so totally unasked for, turned everything upside down in my mind. All my searching in religion, in relationships, in atheism, none of it compared with this love coursing through me like electricity. For the first time, I knew God was real and that he loved me. This changes everything, I realised. In Athens, Paul is pointing to what David Bennett and countless others, including myself, have experienced. God is not another lifeless creation from within ourselves, a philosophy to debate the truth of, but a living God who can be met, who wants to be known and to know us. And when we meet him, he brings new heavenly life into ours like we've never experienced before. That all our imaginings about God fail to compete with or compare with. Paul here is saying, Athenians, quite simply, the reason that you have rested in agnosticism and the door remains shut to you is that you haven't met God who has been made known and accessible in Jesus. This is how Paul answers my daughter's intimidating question. How can I believe Christianity is true? So many of my friends believe in different gods or no God at all. How do I know that Christianity is right? Paul says, daughter, God is not an idea, a truth amongst other truths. He is a person who can be known, talked to, walked with, listened to played with and bowed before, who brings new life into our very being and raises us from the dead that we have been living in, who has been made known to us and met through the person of Jesus Christ and his work, who removed all barriers between us and him, 
meeting him, knowing him, knowing his love is the way you can believe Christianity is true and above and beyond all ideas of the world. For once you have met him, all fear and doubt is cast aside and life in all its fullness awaits. Let me close with this today. Christianity has always been an invite and not an idea. It's an invite to come and know the living God again. Having the sin that blocked us and prevented us, prevented us from coming to him broken by Jesus. And in being given in return a new, free, forgiven life with him through Jesus' work. So that you can know and be known by God again. Sadly, so often our searching for God, or as we go on in our Christian lives, we miss and forget this and can make the same mistake as the Athenians. We seek to pry open the mysteries of life and God through our own efforts, through our own intellect, our religious activity, gaining of knowledge and new ideas, and holding up lifeless imaginary images and creations and thoughts about who God might be. And, and because of this, the door to his amazing, life-giving, resurrecting presence remains firmly shut to us. We remain agnostic, one who thinks, yeah, there might be a God, but you can't fully know him. And we miss totally what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 7, when he said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We miss the truth that the door to God can never be fully opened from our side through our efforts and imaginations. We need another to open it for us. At some point in our seeking, we need to ask, we need to knock and seek for him to open it and push it open from his side and come on into our lives. And Jesus and Paul both teach us that when we do this, the living God, the bringer of a life and love like you have never known, who is close by to you, will come to us, swing it wide open and gladly come into the tombs of our lives, bringing his incomparable life in his presence into our world. This is the message of Christianity. That if you seek God, the doorway is made open by him to come into your lives. Let me just finish by praying. Father God, I just want to ask you this morning, Father God, for all of those seeking or all of those who have just forgotten, Lord Jesus, that you are a living God who wants to be known and has broken all the chains of knowing you through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you will come again and meet with people as they invite you into their spirits and into their lives once more. In Jesus' name, amen.